Let's open our Bibles to the prophet Malachi. May the Lord be praised and your hearts blessed by all that's already been said and heard in this assembly. Derek Carver and all those that went before us were great and noble men and women laying down their lives for the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a shame that if we ever find difficulty in living our lives for Him, as has been said several times this morning. Malachi is the final warning of God to Israel of the Old Testament. The next message that we have from God is John the Baptist bursting on the scene and crying out for the Jews to repent for the kingdom of heaven was at hand. We've had four lessons already. In the first five verses of the first chapter, it was the differences that God had made, especially between Jacob and Esau and their descendants. And the Jews should have noticed that great difference and given God the glory for it. He described in verse 5 that the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. There are borders in the world, and God makes enormous differences between how the people live on one side of that border and how they live on the other. In the second half of that chapter, we had the warning about their careless, neglectful form of worship. They weren't worshiping God with all their hearts and zeal. They weren't bringing their best sacrifices. And so their worship was totally unacceptable. Partial worship is unacceptable to God. He doesn't care about your stinking 50%. He doesn't care about your stinking 90%. The first commandment is, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. He wants it all because He's a great King. And that's what we learned in that second lesson of Malachi chapter 1. I hope the 14th verse you will never forget. But cursed be the deceiver. That's a person that says they're a Christian and barely gives God a little bit. Hardly does anything for him. Cursed be the deceiver, which hath in his flock a male, and voweth, and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. The Jews should have known Jehovah God better than any nation on earth, but they were not giving him the worship due his name. But the Lord said the Gentiles will do that. And so we are here today seeking to give Him the worship that is due His name. His name is dreadful to us. It's glorious to us. And we're thankful for knowing Him. I would like to point out to you that the title of God and the name of God, not the title, the name, Lord of hosts, Jehovah of hosts, Jehovah of the armies of heaven, is 24 times in this little book far denser than any other book of the Bible. Because of this warning is carrying with it God's name as the Lord of hosts. He's going to be coming in judgment if they do not pick up on the warning. In chapter 2, lesson number 3 was contained in verses 1 through 9, which was for the priests and their faithlessness in executing their office and how God considered their solemn assemblies to be done. He was going to corrupt their seed. He was going to take them away. He was going to remove His covenant with them. He was going to make them base and contemptible. Lesson number three. Lesson number four was in verses 10 through 16, and it was about marriage and how the Jewish men were committing treachery against their Jewish wives by marrying pagan women. 
And they were using divorce and they were using polygamy to justify their sins. We come to lesson number five. It's in the last verse of chapter two. Ye have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet ye say, wherein have we wearied him? When ye say, every one that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delighteth in them. Or, where is the God of judgment? These people had wearied God. Now God doesn't get tired. This is using human language to describe the fact that he was sick and tired of their wicked thinking. And we live in a generation that has wicked thinking very much like this. There is a ridiculous statement made that God hates the sin but loves the sinner. That is not in the Bible. That is not even Bible doctrine. And that's exactly what they were saying here. And it was that kind of thinking that God was sending the prophet Malachi to blast. They were saying it in these words. Everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord. See, they're noting that there is evil involved. God hates the evil, but God hates, but God loves the doer of the evil. No, he doesn't. The Bible says in Psalm 5, 5, thou hatest all workers of iniquity. God hates all workers of iniquity. The only way that God can ever love one of our race is to have chosen us in Christ Jesus so that he views us through his son. Only then are we loved by God. And it says so in Ephesians chapter 1, where it says we've been chosen in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blemish before Him in love. Because God cannot love a sinful object. It is impossible. He must love only holy objects because He is holy. But yet they had this saying among themselves, and this does not have the words, in that ye say. So this, these are not words implied from their actions. This is their philosophy that they expressed. Everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them. And they also said, where is the God of judgment? You know, Malachi and all the prophets of your profession, you come around telling us that God's going to judge us. Where is the God of judgment? I want you to understand that chapter 3 is going to be the response to this heresy. So that when we get into the next lesson, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 3, you'll understand where it's coming from. False worshipers that exalt compromise are so ignorant, they lose the sight of God's nature. Look at the situation here. The lessons that we've had so far. Chapter 1, they did not understand the difference God had made with them. Number 2, They didn't worship God with all their hearts. Lesson number three, the priests were partial in the law of God and did not preach the whole counsel of God. See, the average preacher today, and there aren't very many preachers left, there are storytellers and there are entertainers. But the preachers that are left, all they know how to talk about is the love of God. That's all they know about God. That is being so partial about God. There are so many other things that we should know about God. He is a holy God. He is a righteous God. He is a God of wrath and He is a dreadful being. And knowing the terror of the Lord, men should be persuaded. The Bible doesn't say to persuade men by the love of God. The Bible says to persuade men by the terror of the Lord. 
You know, when you heard the Sermon on the Mount on Wednesday evening from me, all 111 verses of it, there wasn't a thought in it about the love of God. It was about living a holy and righteous life because God is holy and righteous and He expects us to live accordingly. But when you have men and preachers that are partial in the law and you have the church practicing divorce and not treating their spouses right so that you have a degeneration of practical living and you have impractical and partial preaching and you have a lack of zeal for real worship, what happens? The compromise leads to misunderstanding the Bible. The compromise leads to misunderstanding God. The compromise leads to thinking God is different than the Bible describes Him to be. You know, people today do not think that God is like what we preach in this church. Because hardly anyone preaches the Bible anymore. They preach their ideas about God. They preach what they think God is like. Never, ever think that God is like anything you are capable of thinking. The only way that we know about God is this revelation right here. This revelation and how it describes Him. And so, here is Malachi the prophet giving this nation, the nation of God, the church of the Old Testament, its final warning. Don't think that those that do evil are good in the sight of the Lord. It doesn't matter that they're Jews. It doesn't matter that they're Israelites. God despises sinners that don't repent. And God is going to come in wrath on this nation. They should have remembered that since they had just come back from Babylon and the captivity there. Brethren, if there's compromise that takes place in the pulpit and there's compromise that takes place in the pew, the minds of men degenerate and collapse and default to an idea of God that is not right. And so we have to come back to the Word of God. Listen, we want to see the borders that God's made in our lives, chapter 1. We want to worship God with the best we have, chapter 1. We better have a ministry that preaches the whole counsel of God and doesn't ever compromise it, chapter 2. We better practice holiness in our personal lives, chapter 2, or we will lose our sight of God as He truly is. We come back into this house for a few hours a week, out of the 168 hours, to be reminded of what the Bible says God is like. Because we're all going to meet Him, and He's not like what you think He's like. He's like what the Bible says. And the Bible says, prepare to meet thy God. Amos chapter 4 and verse 12. Prepare to meet thy God. And we want to prepare today by coming into His house, reverently worshiping Him, looking in the Word of God, trusting what it says, disregarding what everyone else has to say about God. Billy Graham doesn't know the God of the Bible. Are you kidding? Billy Graham has come to believe in his old senile age that there is no hell. Everyone's going to be saved. He doesn't have a clue about the God of the Bible. Billy Graham was so ignorant of what the Bible teaches, he couldn't even figure out that baptism is by immersion. Billy Graham is a Presbyterian. It blows my mind when Baptists want to watch Billy Graham. Billy Graham couldn't even figure out baptism. And so that degenerates, that partiality in the Word of God is an implosion of knowledge until you end up with no hell. Until you end up with Billy Graham saying to Larry King on Larry King Live 
that there was more chance of Pope John Paul II being in heaven than for him being in heaven. This is what is happening around us. And we are nothing. We're the least of all God's children. I'm the least of His servants. But there's one thing, and only one thing I have to say to you, and it's what the Bible says about God. I'm not going to compromise what He says about God. We're not going to be, what the Bible says about the Lord, we're not going to be partial in His Word. And so when we read these words, we can see that God is sick and tired of such thinking, and He's going to come in judgment. What happens is when God doesn't judge a public, visible sinner, immediately people think, well, he must not be so bad in the eyes of God, or God is not as harsh as our pastor makes him out to be. Look at Psalm 50 so that I can share verses with you again that I've probably shared a hundred times. Psalm 50. Because by repetition, we need to remind ourselves of God's warning of how we can lose sight of what He's actually like. Psalm 50 and verse 21. A number of sins have been listed in the verses leading up to verse 21. The sins begin from 16 down through 20. These things, I'm reading verse 21 to you. God is addressing His people. These things hast thou done, and I kept silence. God didn't do anything immediately. I kept silence. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself. You thought I must be like you because I'm letting you get away with these things. But I will reprove thee and set them in order before thine eyes. I will straighten this out since you seem to misunderstand me because I've been silent for a little while. You're presuming that I'm like you. I'll straighten this out. Verse 22, now consider this, ye that forget God. See, they had forgotten the God of the Bible. They thought He was like them. That is forgetting God the way that the Bible describes Him to be. Now consider this, ye that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. Right. Amen. That's what God says. This is the Bible. God says, I'm silent when you're sinning. And so you think that I must not think that sin is very bad. His silence is His long-suffering. His long-suffering is an opportunity for us to repent. And if we don't repent in the period of time He gives us to repent, He's going to tear us in pieces, as the text tells us. Back to Malachi chapter 2 and verse 17. You know, such lies are true today. They just want to talk all the time about God loves everyone because they're lovable. There's nothing lovable about any person that's ever lived. They tell us that we should love ourselves as well. You know that self-love is the number one love in America. Learning to love yourself. We already love ourselves too much. We need to learn to love others as much as we love ourselves, is what Jesus taught. They say that God isn't as picky as Bible thumpers say He is. We're all His children. We're all the children of God. Oh, no, we're not. Only those that are adopted through the Lord Jesus Christ are His children. The rest are the children of the devil. That's what Jesus would say if he was here. When he was here preaching to his church, his people, his nation, his cousins, he said, ye are of your father, the devil. John 8, 44. He said that the Jews worshipped in the synagogue of Satan. Revelation 2, 9 and Revelation 3, 9 both say the same thing. 
You know, these sins that the nation was allowing had caused them to lose sight of God, and we don't want to lose sight of the Lord. I remember as a teenager when Bill Bright wrote the world's most popular track. Bill Bright, Campus Crusade, the most popular track that's ever been written. It's entitled The Four Spiritual Laws. Like the universe operates by these four laws Bill Bright came up with. Law number one, as you open that little track, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I'm thankful that when I was 19 years of age, I visited the First Baptist Church of Saline, Michigan, and the man in that pulpit that day asked, Do you think that Noah was passing out those tracks from the bridge of the ark? No, I needed to hear that. You know, was Noah up there passing out these tracks as fast as he could? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. What was God's plan for everyone on earth except for Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives? To suffocate them all in water. It didn't matter about their age, young or old. It didn't matter about their race. It didn't matter whether they were handicapped. It didn't matter how nice they were. It didn't matter if they bought Girl Scout cookies. They were all going to suffocate in water because the thoughts of men's hearts were only evil continually from his youth, and it's no different today. The only promise we have of God is it's not going to be with water this time. This time He's going to burn up the earth with unquenchable fire. Second Peter chapter 3. Lord, have mercy upon us and help us. That is not the first spiritual law. The first spiritual law is the Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. Amen. Proverbs 16.4. That's the first spiritual law if you want one. Just to try on and compare it to Bill Bright's insanity. Look at the effect that Campus Crusade for Christ has had in America over the past 40 years since I was 16 years old. Look at the effect in the churches and the decline of Bible preaching, the decline of holy living. Just like it was here. We live in the perilous times of the last days. You know, I write people every single week, almost every single day about the perilous times of the last days, pointing out to them why they are living in such a predicament that they can't find a Bible preaching church that really preaches the Bible, because we are in those terrible times. Men weary God when they corrupt the knowledge of God. God condemns this heresy. Look at Zephaniah, back a few pages to the the prophet Zephaniah. Not Zechariah, you're going to have to go back further to Zephaniah. Chapter 1, Zephaniah chapter 1, where is the God of judgment, they say? See, America has got away with a lot of sinning for a long time. And so there'd be a temptation to say, where's the God of judgment? Maybe God doesn't judge sin anymore like He used to. It's His long-suffering. There's righteous people in this nation that are praying for God's mercy. Do you know that God would have spared Sodom and Gomorrah if there'd have been just ten righteous souls in it? He'd have spared the... The, the thousands that made up the cities of the plain. He wouldn't have burned them up with fire and brimstone. And so there's a righteous, there's a righteous remnant in the United States of America that pray for God's mercy on this nation. And so he's showing his long suffering, but it will come to an end. This is his church in Zephaniah chapter one and verse 12. 
It shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with candles and punish the men that are settled on their lees. They're taking their ease that say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, neither will he do evil. He's not really involved in our lives. Verse 13, therefore, their goods shall become a booty and their houses a desolation. They shall also build houses, but not inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards, but not drink the wine thereof. The great day of the Lord is near. God was coming in judgment. It didn't matter what they thought about it, because our thoughts are all vanity. Didn't I start out with that today? I hate vain thoughts, and we all get vain thoughts. I think God's approving of my life. I've actually got a little cash in the bank. That isn't proof. That's the prosperity of fools. God's given you that extra cash in the bank to deceive you into thinking that all is right with your life because you're not going by the Bible. He says that in Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 32 that He sends the prosperity of fools on men. Don't you ever measure your life by good or evil. That is not how we know God. We measure our lives by the Bible and we measure God by the Bible. In the day of prosperity and in the day of adversity, you should be considering based on God's Word. This is lesson number five in the book of Malachi. Much more could be said. I hope that you will remember these few things. God may delay His judgment to harden some. Did God delay His judgment to harden Pharaoh? God may delay His judgment to soften others. He delays His judgment so that we have time to repent if we will repent. And God delays His judgment to deceive men so that they will think like Psalm 50 that God is like them. God may delay His judgment because He is fattening them up for the slaughter. Do you butcher cattle when you first take them out of the field and put them in a pen? Oh no, you need to fatten them up. Does the Bible say that God ever fattens people up for the slaughter? Genesis chapter 15 and 16. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. See, they weren't fat enough. 1 Thessalonians 2.16 When the iniquity of the Jews had fulfilled itself in killing the Son of God and the apostles, then the wrath of 70 A.D. fell on them. This is the lesson. Our, our lesson number five, we've wearied the Lord. And we live in a generation that wearies the Lord with their talking and their singing and their pretend preaching about Him. And they say, wherein have we wearied Him? What are we doing that wearies God? When you say that everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord. That is not true. And you're wearying me with such ridiculous statements. And He delighteth in them. No, he doesn't delight in them. You know, because they have the assumption that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, then God loves sodomites. God loves everyone. Because they've started from a false assumption. They haven't read their Bibles. They've been partial in the Word of God instead of using the whole of Scripture. Does God love his people? Absolutely, he loves his people. He is not going to send a single soul to hell that He loves. That is impossible. It doesn't even make good moron sense. 
No one can be separated from the love of God, the Bible tells us. He's going to save every single one He's ever loved. And He's going to save them with an everlasting salvation. Lord, have mercy. May we never compromise and may we remember, I hate vain thoughts, but Thy law do I love. Because right there is a vain thought in Malachi 2.17. Let's go to the next lesson. Lesson number 6 in the book of Malachi. For those of you that know Handel's Messiah, there are words in verses 1 through 3 that should come back to you, very precious to you. Let me read these five, six verses to you that compose uh, this lesson number 6, the first lesson of chapter 3. Behold, look and consider, behold, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts, but who may abide the day of his coming and who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver. That they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. And I will come near to you to judgment. And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right. And fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. And we could put... One little word at the end of that sixth verse, yet. You are not consumed yet because I have a prophetic mission to fulfill and that's to send my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, because they were consumed in 70 AD. Let's quickly look at these verses. In, in verse 1, behold, there's two beholds there which should tip us off that it's an important verse that we ought to recognize that he wants us to see something and to consider it. There's a behold at the beginning, and there's a behold in the last couple of lines of the verse. And you should notice that. This verse is describing Jesus Christ at his first coming, coming in judgment. Because the question has been asked, where is the God of judgment? I am sorry that there is a chapter division between verse 17 of chapter 2 and verse 1 of chapter 3, if that causes you mental difficulties. But still, we have to read on in Scripture and see the context. What's the context of verses 2 through 6? Judgment. What's the context of 2.17? Judgment. This is the first coming. How do we know it's the first coming? Because this verse is quoted repeatedly in all the Gospels about John the Baptist and Jesus Christ at Jesus Christ's first coming. C.I. Schofield, who doesn't know very much about the Bible, because he is obsessed and, and guilty of idolatry about the Jews. 
He believed the Jewish fables about a restoration of the Jews. All distinctions between Jews and Gentiles were eliminated at the cross of Calvary. We are one. We are Abraham's seed, according to Galatians chapter 3. When the Apostle Paul wrote Gentile churches in Galatia, he said that they were the seed of Abraham. We're the seed of Abraham. Anyone who believes on Christ, whether they're Jew or Gentiles, are the seed of Abraham. Well, they just can't handle the Lord Jesus Christ being a messenger of judgment. But he was of judgment. John the Baptist's ministry was of judgment. Look at Matthew chapter 3. It's only a few pages away because for 400 years, God didn't send prophets that are recorded in Scripture. But when John the Baptist burst on the scene, listen to his words and see if they don't sound familiar from Malachi chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3 verse 7. This is John the Baptist. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers. Well, now, that's not very nice. Why would a nice guy like John the Baptist, standing there with a leather girdle on, crunching down grasshoppers after he dips them in wild honey, where was his fine suit? Where was his pretty wife? She was sitting at the piano. I love the prophets of God. This is what Israel deserved, and they got a wild man. But do you know what Jesus said about this wild man? Of men that are born of women, he was the greatest. Now there's more to that statement, but I I don't want the second half right now. I want the first half. He was the greatest ever born to a woman. John the Baptist standing out there, his hair halfway down his back, wild and unkept, a leather girdle on, crunching grasshoppers. And here come these fine men. They've got Scripture on box, in boxes tied to their foreheads, Scripture on their arms. They are so holy. You know, the blue fringe that God told them to have at one inch on their garments, they've got a foot of it because they're so holy. And here they come out there to see John. And John says to them, O generation of vipers, you snakes, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Oh, there must be some wrath coming soon on the Jews. Bring forth therefore fruits, meet for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. He's going to burn them up. Speaking of Jesus Christ, whose fan is in his hand. Can you see him fanning the flames? Not of hell, of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., whose fan is in his hand, and he will truly purge his floor and gather the wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's the ministry of John the Baptist. So when you come to Malachi 3.1, it's not warm and fuzzy words for those that were looking for a Redeemer. It's the terror of the Lord for those that were mocking God and His messenger of the covenant. 
Those that were saying God delights in sinners. Those that were saying, where is the God of judgment? Well, here's the God of judgment. He's going to send a messenger before His face, and then He's going to come, and He's going to come to His temple suddenly. Now, 400 years later was not sudden if you use the word for quick. But the word sudden is also used in the Bible for coming in judgment. He shall suddenly come to His temple. And when He came, even at 12, He confounded the doctors of the law. And He came into that temple, and He drove out the money changers by turning over their tables. He made Himself a scourge and beat those Jews. And He said, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, John the Baptist, and the Lord, notice it is not capital L-O-R-D, it's not Jehovah, it's Jehovah's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. How did they seek him? Where is the God of judgment? Oh, you want to see some judgment? We'll send the Lord whom you're seeking. You don't think He's a God of judgment anymore? We'll send the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to understand the sarcasm of Malachi 3.1. He hasn't shifted objects all of a sudden from chapter 2 and verse 17 being the blasphemous wicked Jews and verse 2 is the blasphemous wicked Jews down through verse 5 because notice all the sins that are listed there. Those that do evil... God loves them, and God delights in them? Well, the prophet is saying, Jesus Christ is going to come and be a swift witness. And he starts listing off the sins. Just because you've gotten away with adultery for a while, just because you've gotten away with sorcery for a while, doesn't mean that God approves of it. He's going to come, and He's going to be a swift witness against all those sinners that they, in chapter 2 and verse 17, said God delighted in them. Let's take a little break from the heat. Mark chapter 1 and verse 2. This is just a little rabbit trail excursion. Mark, do you love your Bible? Mark chapter 1. Have I, have I read Malachi 3 1 enough for you to know when it's being quoted? Malachi 3 1. Who wrote Malachi? Malachi wrote Malachi. Do you remember when you were in the sixth grade and you had a question on a history test? Who's buried in Grant's tomb? Where are the Paris peace talks being held? Do you remember those kind of questions, you older folks? Well, here's one. Who wrote Malachi? Malachi did. Didn't it tell us that in the first verse? Mark 1-2. I'm going to read it as it appears in every other Bible version. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Now can you recognize in verse 2 that we have the words of Malachi 3.1? Behold, was that word there? I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. I want you to remember Mark 1.2. I've asked you to remember 2 Samuel 21.19 because the NIV and these other newfangled Bibles have a different man killing Goliath instead of David. 
How can you have a PhD and a THD and sit down at a table and sign off on a Bible that has a man named El Hanan killing Goliath? How can that happen? It happens because God blinds men that mess with His Bible. And so He shows His Bible to us little people because we love to be God's babes. Jesus said that Lord, the Lord had hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them unto babes. We want to be the Lord's babes. Amen. You go to the Lord and tell them that we're babes. You go to the Lord and tell them I'm His babe. I go to the Lord and tell them I'm His babe. I don't care what all those men that went to cemetery have to say about the Bible. They're dead. Right. And look what they do right here. The NIV, the NASB, the, the English Standard Version, whole, the Holman Christian Bible, they all say the same thing in Mark 1-2 because they're all idolaters of the same two manuscripts, both of which are Roman Catholic. Vaticanus in the Pope's Library in the Vatican, Sinaiticus found in a wastebasket in St. Catherine's Monastery at the base of Mount Sinai. Those two manuscripts. Right. They're slaves to them. No matter what those ridiculous manuscripts, and there's a hundred different ways to prove that those manuscripts are absolute garbage. But God has blinded them. They wanted to mess with His Word. I want you to remember Mark 1-2. So when you meet someone with a different Bible, ask them, how intelligent were your translators and your editors for putting Isaiah in Mark 1-2? Because their Bibles read, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Do you know how good God was to give us as it is written in the prophets? Because verse 2 is a quotation from Malachi 3.1. Verse 3 is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 40. There's two prophets involved. Is that sweet? But you know what? They've discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know, the Dead Sea Scrolls say, you know, Jesus is still dead. There's no God. Whatever they say in the ridiculous Dead Sea Scrolls, who cares about the Dead Sea Scrolls? There's been no fruit from those little pieces of junk. This Bible has 400 years of spiritual fruit. This Bible changed the world. This Bible accompanied the English wherever they went. English is the universal language. Pagans understand the importance of this book. I read some statements last night by a Roman Catholic priest that defected from the Church of England to the Roman Catholics and a statement that he made about the King James Bible that it is genetically in the conscience and soul of English-speaking people. Now, this was a 100 years ago. I wouldn't say it's anywhere anymore except for God's God's elect that have loved this book. But we got to get back to Malachi or I'm going to be in worse trouble than I am. But you know what I gave you? Something from Mark 1-2 when somebody pulls out their NIV and says, this has been updated with newer manuscripts and it's better than the King James Bible, then take them to Mark 1-2 and ask them, in Mark 1-2, where it says that that quotation is from Isaiah, can you find it for me there, please? I can't find it. Well, I'll show you where it is. It's Malachi 3.1. And then ask them that question. The editorial committee that came up with the NIV, how could they do that? I don't know. Do you think they knew that Mark 1-2 comes from Malachi 3-1? Now, I can't ask if you have an NIV with you, 
But if you had an NIV with you, do you know that it has a footnote at Mark 1-2? Yep. And when you go down and you find the footnote, it says, quotation from Malachi 3-1. When you're talking out of both sides of your mouth, what are you? A liar. Back to Malachi chapter 3. God said in both Testaments over and over that when men mess with His words, He will blind them and confound them and turn them into foolishness. And He's turned these modern versions into foolishness. The Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to His temple. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Even the messenger of the covenant, He said, this cup is the New Testament. This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Whom ye delight in, they didn't delight in Him sincerely. This isn't talking about sincere delight. This is mocking them sarcastically for their ridicule. They were looking for a man to deliver them from Rome. They were looking for a man to deliver them from the Persians and from Greece. They didn't want the Lord of glory in what He was going to do when He came. This is the final warning. It's about judgment. You know that the context is judgment in verses 2-5, through and you know the context is judgment in 2.17. When the Lord wants to speak to the righteous, do you want to, about the coming of Jesus Christ from Malachi's pen? Do you want to hear it? It's chapter 4, and it's verse 2. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in His wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. Now does that, does that make you happy that I found a verse in Malachi that's for the righteous? But see, Malachi 3.1 doesn't sound anything like that at all. It's mocking them. You want the God of judgment? He's coming suddenly. And He's going to have a messenger in front of Him. But look at what the messenger said. The axe is now laid to the root of the trees, whose fan is in His hand. He's going to baptize you with fire. I'm baptizing with water. But Jesus Christ is going to baptize you with fire. And He burned up that city that had crucified Him. Nobody even knows it. They go to Sunday school and learn nothing. They go to sermons and hear nothing about the emphasis in the Bible of what happened in 70 A.D. to the murderers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ had prophesied it over and over. Malachi is prophesying about it right here at the first coming of Jesus Christ. This is not the second coming. This is His first coming. But who may abide the day of His coming? See? But the righteous would be rejoicing, right? But He's not addressing the righteous. He's addressing the wicked. Who may abide the day of His coming? You want to see the God of judgment? You're not going to be able to handle it. And who shall stand when He appeareth? No one will be able to stand against the Lord Jesus Christ, for He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Fuller's soap purges out dirt from garments and cloth. A refiner's fire purges out impurities from metals to leave what is pure. It is a blast furnace. It is incredibly hot. And fuller soap is very powerful to get every bit of dirt out and to leave only the pure good cloth. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ did when He came the first time. Simeon told his mother Mary, this baby is set for the rise and fall of many in Israel. Who were the, who rose? Those that rose with the Son of Righteousness with healing in His wings. They were purged from their sins and sanctified by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Who fell? Those that wouldn't repent, He fell on them and destroyed them. 1.1 million. Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Berlin, 
and Dresden and Hamburg, Germany, and the, the death and destruction that we hurled on them in World War II, if you add up all five cities, Hamburg, Dresden, Berlin, Nagasaki, and Hiroshima, all five of them together are not one quarter of what died in the city of Jerusalem from starvation and violence during the siege of the Romans. No wonder, Jesus said, there will be a great tribulation the likes of which the world has not seen nor ever will see. And do you know what? I believe the Lord Jesus. And do you know when he said that would happen? This generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. And the Lord Jesus Christ shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. That is a hot furnace that purifies silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. This verse 3 is so wonderful. Can you hear the words from a piece of music? And he shall purify the sons of Levi. You know this is the first coming, right? With John the Baptist and Jesus Christ from verse 1. Did he purify the sons of Levi literally? What did he do when he came the first time? He abolished the Levitical priesthood and replaced it with himself and made all of us kings and priests. We're all under the Old Testament figure of Levi, the kings and priests, a royal priesthood, as it's described in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. Were there some priests that believed? Sure. But I'm not going to limit the fulfillment of verse 3 to something so small as a few dozen priests that were converted and followed the Lord Jesus Christ because the vast majority did not. He's using Levi to refer to something else. This is, you know, if you take this to be Levi literally, then you know what else you have to take? That the sacrifices are animal sacrifices after Jesus came and he made them acceptable to God more than they had been. Oh no. These are not animal sacrifices. These are New Testament sacrifices of the new priesthood under the name of Levi. Because that's how prophets spoke. Prophets used similitudes. They don't come out and say right at a place like this, oh, by the way, don't forget that a whole bunch of Gentiles are going to be converted and through Jesus Christ they're all going to become kings and priests and they're going to offer New Testament sacrifices as is going to be described in a book called Hebrews chapter 13 verses 15 and No, he doesn't go into any of that. Under the figure of the priesthood being from Levi, they're going to be purified. Jesus Christ said as a refiner, Jesus didn't improve the Jews' worship. Jesus made the New Testament and established it made up of Jews and Gentiles and were all priests. He abolished the Levitical priesthood. When did he abolish it? When he tore the temple veil in half. The way into God was open. Because when was, it, when was it torn? When he died on the cross and said it is finished. The open way to God was finished at that point from those animal sacrifices having any meaning and from any priest being able to approach into God. Now anyone could approach into God through Jesus Christ his Lord. That they could now offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. It wasn't animal sacrifices. It was New Testament sacrifices. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem... Who's the true Jews? Who's the true Jerusalem? Not the one on earth. The Apostle Paul would tell us that that Jerusalem that was on earth was to be compared to Hagar and her son Ishmael, and they were kicked out. 
It's the heavenly Jerusalem, which is above, that is the mother of us all. That heavenly Jerusalem. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord. See, the church existed when Malachi was preaching, and the church existed under Jesus, and the church existed under Paul, but it changed from just being Jewish. It changed from having Levites taking care of the worship of God to having everyone being a king and a priest. And a, an entire new set of sacrifices. All those other ordinances passed away because it was the time of Reformation. As Hebrews 9, 1 through 10 tell us that that tabernacle and all of its furniture and all the ordinances of the Jews passed away. Right. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. You know, when you're reading through the Bible and you see Abraham or you see Isaac or Jacob or Moses worshiping God and God accepting their worship, or you go to David's great celebrations or Solomon's great celebrations or Hezekiah's great celebrations or Josiah's great celebrations that we heard about recently. And you look at them and you say, oh, what I'd love to have been part of something so great as a Passover by Josiah where the Lord would say it had never been celebrated that way in, in Israel. Well, what do we have to do anything on that grand of a scale? We have the Lord's Supper, and it's next Sunday, second service. And when we come to the Lord's Supper, in faith, with those few little elements of wine and unleavened bread, we're offering up a sacrifice that annihilates the Passover. The Passover with a lamb's blood? Are you kidding? We have the fulfillment of that beggarly, carnal, weak, elementary, rudimentary way of worship. Rejoice, brethren. You're priests. You can go to God right now. Every child in here that believes on the Lord Jesus Christ can go into heaven itself and appear in the presence of God by your prayers and have His ear. There is no veil. There's a new and living way into His presence. And so there's been a purification of the priesthood Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years, and I will come to you to judgment. Where is the God of judgment? I'm coming. And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers. Do you remember what Jesus Christ said in Matthew chapter 16? What he said in Matthew chapter 23? What he said in Matthew chapter 12? This is an evil and an adulterous generation. Whosoever putteth away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, committeth adultery. Whosoever marrieth her that is put away, saving for the cause of fornication, committeth adultery. A swift witness against the adulterers. A swift witness against the sorcerers. A swift witness against false swearers. Did Jesus blast false swearers in Matthew chapter 5 that we heard on Wednesday night? A swift witness. And against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, don't pay them on time, that oppress the widow, that oppress the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right. And fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. The Lord Jesus Christ came as a swift witness in judgment against everyone that did not fear him and tremble before the God of heaven and rejoice to see him. He said he was going to bring upon them all the righteous blood shed from Abel to Zechariah in Matthew chapter 23. He said, how shall ye escape the damnation of hell? 
Those are the words of Jesus Christ to his generation of the church. How shall ye escape the damnation of hell? He came. For I am the Lord. He's a God of judgment. He's a God of wrath. For I am the Lord. I change not. You think that I've changed? You think that I approve of sinners? You think that I'm no longer the God of judgment? You think there is no God of judgment? You think that since He's brought you back from Babylon, you can live any way you want and there's not going to be consequences to pay? For I am the Lord. I am Jehovah God. I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. I'm a God of judgment, but I'm a God of long-suffering. And I have a prophetic timetable for my messenger to come before the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is going to do all that I have just described in the first five verses. And therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. And that's why I said, yet. Because the sense of this is, yet. Because after Jesus Christ came and fulfilled these first five verses, He most definitely did consume the sons of Jacob. What are we going to do with this message? Do you know what the Lord Jesus Christ said in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 19? He said, everyone that I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, repent. We've been reminded of vain thoughts from Malachi chapter 2 and verse 17. Vain thoughts that God just loves everybody and doesn't really care whether they sin or not. That there really isn't a God of judgment. We've been reminded that that is false. And then we've been shown that the Lord Jesus Christ, who did come to save His people from their sins, Matthew one twenty one, He did come to save His people from their sins, came for a whole lot more than that, that Schofield and these other Jew lovers will not accept from the Bible. That He did not come in judgment. He most definitely did come in judgment. John the Baptist announced his judgment. He announced his judgment. He said, if a man fall on me in repentance, if a man fall on me, he will be broken. But if I fall on him, I will grind him to powder. Matthew chapter 21. We should humble ourselves before Malachi 2.17 and realize that without God's grace, we could easily be part of the movement of these perilous times to teach a God that is different from the God of the Bible and we would accept it and believe it and live accordingly. Every lesson that we have learned in Malachi, we had better repent of and do what is right so that we do not lose the revelation of God that He's given to us in the Scriptures. We will lose sight of it. We will be able to sign off on Mark 1-2 and not even recognize that it's Malachi that gave the words while we sign off on it giving the credit to Isaiah. We will forget God if we do not remember what the Bible says about Him. It is serious. Prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Will you be zealous with me? Let's be zealous about seeing the differences God's made in our lives. First five verses, chapter 1. That we worship Him with the best we have. The rest of chapter 1. That we demand and expect a ministry that is not partial in the Word of God and lives up to what they preach. First half of chapter 2. That we guard our marriages and there's no treachery in them. Second half of chapter 2. That we do not abide words like 2.17. We don't abide words like the four spiritual laws. 
We don't abide that kind of talking or thinking because we know what God has revealed in the pages of Scripture and that we recognize the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are going to pray for a man in the Second Assembly who's a pastor in Africa who is converting right now and who's preaching Psalm 15 to his congregation this morning who was gripped and converted by the fact that leading sinners through a sinner's prayer of Jesus as Savior is not taught in the Bible. That Jesus is Lord and that it ought to result in changed lives. There is no evidence, no description, no one in the Bible ever trusted some little ridiculous decision they made for Jesus as the basis of their salvation. The basis for salvation is good works. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And it's Malachi 3, 1 through 6. When Jesus Christ came the first time, He was more than a Savior on a cross. He was also a swift witness in judgment against sin and sinners. May we remember, third time I'm quoting it to you, Revelation 3.19 As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous therefore and repent. But He's a wonderful Savior for us. I want us to see the full Lord Jesus Christ of the Bible. He was a swift witness against sinners. And He will be a swift chastener against us if we don't repent. But He is a glorious Savior. He is our all in all. He is altogether lovely because He's all of both. He is a God of judgment. And knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But it is the love of Christ that constraineth us. We want both. We want all of it. We want to embrace our Savior as a great and glorious King against whom there is no rising up. But we want to humble ourselves before Him and repent and live every day in awe of our glorious King. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word from Malachi chapters 2 and 3 today. Amen. Amen.